you have your Bibles, I'd love to encourage you to join me in Matthew chapter 17. I appreciate a clean car. How many of you like a clean car? Good, good. I like to clean my cars. I know if I said generically I like to clean cars, I would be making an unintended offer. I like to clean my cars. Part of cleaning a car is vacuuming it out. We have four cars. I'm a very prosperous preacher with four cars. We have four drivers in our home, and at times there are four cars in our driveway. May I assure you it is more like a used car lot than a new car lot. Vacuuming the cars is quite the experience. If I were vacuuming my son's car, I might be vacuuming up protein powder. Probably so. If I were vacuuming up my wife's car, she loves this, it might be little bits of waffle fries from (laughs) Chick-fil-A. If I were vacuuming up my car, well, there's nothing to vacuum up because I'm clean all the time. What you might find is loose change and some cigarette butts and a cup. (laughs) You might find loose change around in the car. And every time that I encounter loose change... I am confronted with a decision because if I take the coin and stick it in my pockets, I then must decide what I'm going to do with that coin later on. But I will assure you of this. If I find a quarter, I don't vacuum it up. I grab it and stick it in my pocket. A dime, I think to myself, it would be fun to vacuum up because it's so small. It's going to get sucked right up in there. But I'm probably going to salvage a dime. A nickel is going to block my vacuum up. And so I probably pocket it. But a penny... My shop back is full of pennies. I asked this in the 945 service. I found the answers pretty intriguing. I think it's generational. How many of you on a walk would stop and pick up a quarter? Yeah, quarter's pretty universal, right? You're going to stop for a quarter. How many of you, if you are walking and you know that there is a dime or you know you've left a dime on a counter or somewhere, are going to go back for a dime? All right, it thins out the younger crowd just a little. My children will throw fives and tens away. They have no concept. How many of you would still go back for a nickel? Mm -hmm. Now, in the 945 service, remember we have our prime timers, which is our older congregation that comes into the 945. There were a lot of hands up. Because if you are over 65 years old, dude, you're going back for a nickel. I was stunned. How many of you, and be honest, be honest, you're on a walk, you notice on the ground there is a penny. How many of you are stopping and bending over? And the older you get, it's pretty expensive to bend over, let's be honest. (laughs) Pretty costly. How many of you are going for a penny? Eh, Some misers in this room. Going back even for a penny. It is fact that we lightly esteem small, seemingly insignificant coins. I was studying and I found legend has it that tossing coins over your shoulder into Rome's Trevi Fountain will ensure that someday you'll make another trip to the city. Visitors engage in that tradition, and it is said that around $1.7 million in loose change is thrown into that fountain every single year. That is significant. I came across the story of a Bradenton, Florida man named Rick Snyder. 
He has what some might consider an odd habit. He does a daily four-hour walk around town, and on his walk, he feeds stray cats. But on his four-hour walk around town to feed stray cats, he stops at car washes, and he goes and checks the change slot on the vacuums there at those car washes. And he found an average of $5.60 per trip, and over a decade amassed $21,495 in lost change, which he promptly gave to the Humane Society. That's the part that pains me. 10 years, 21 grand, just keep feeding the stray cats. Buy yourself something nice. Study will also show by various estimates, between 66 and 74% of the pennies produced by the U.S. Mint get into the hands of consumers and then vanish from circulation. And if you consider that nearly $4.16 billion worth of pennies are produced, that means as much as $3 billion of them will end up on the sidewalk, in between couch cushions, or in a shop vac in my garage somewhere. We are all prone to lose things, and we lightly esteem the seemingly insignificant things. In fact, as I was studying and putting this together, I found one company that did a survey and found that most people spend 230 days of their life over their lifetime looking for things that they've lost. That's a lot of time. Our story in Scripture this morning is about a seemingly insignificant coin that was lost. But it will be given extreme significance. We don't know when it happened. We don't know exactly where it happened, whether it was upon the Sea of Galilee or near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But at some point in time, someone lost a Greek coin that was worth the rough equivalent of about two average days wage for a common working man. Whether they were on a boat and they dropped it or near the shore and they dropped it, you and I can imagine that they heard the splash and probably quickly tried to retrieve it, but soon it was out of sight and it was gone and no doubt they went home kicking themselves. As the coin is dropped into the Sea of Galilee, in my mind's eye I can see it dropping down into the depths, catching a few rays of sun, glistening and flashing, and a fish comes along and bites and eats that coin and then swims its way around the Sea of Galilee looking for some more food to digest. It is a seemingly insignificant series of events that Jesus is going to turn into a very important lesson for us. Every part of this story is a part of his purposeful and sovereign plan. And I'm going to read just a few verses here in a moment, but keep this in mind as I read it. Think of this. There is something unspeakably solemn in the thought that Jesus knows everything. There's an eye that sees all of our daily conduct. There is an ear that hears all of our daily words. All things are open unto Jesus. Concealment is impossible, one wrote. Hypocrisy is useless. We cannot deceive Jesus. Keep that in mind as we read this. I'll begin reading here in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 24. And when they, that's the disciples with Jesus, were come to Capernaum, 
They that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He said, Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, that take, and give unto them for me and thee. Jesus just paid a tax in a pretty miraculous way. I'm always stunned how the miracles of Jesus Christ aren't really delivered with much more pomp and circumstance than they are. Not a lot of fanfare, but it's pretty stunning that Peter went out and everything that Jesus said was going to happen, happened. Now in the context here of Matthew chapter 17, Jesus has just been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and James and John were with him and it was an incredible scene. The voice of God speaks out and and verifies that Jesus is who he says he is. And Peter and James and John are stunned by what they see. They want to stop and build temples here. They've just encountered God. They have seen the other side, as it were. It's miraculous. I'm certain they want to storm down this mountain and they want to go right to Jerusalem and empty the temple and take over the world, as it were. But we end this chapter with Jesus... Paying a customary tribute tax. You have to see those two extremes in here. Out of all the gospel writers, Matthew is the only one that tells us this remarkable story. I like to imagine that in our daily life and ministry, God, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allows for our experiences and our personalities to show through. Remember that Matthew sat at the receipt of customs in Capernaum. Remember that Matthew was a tax collector. And so though this story may have been insignificant or invisible to the other disciples, it stood out to Matthew because this is a story about Jesus paying taxes and maybe that's Matthew's love language. Peter in here is sent down to the seashore to cast a hook in the water. Peter was by trade and his raising a fisherman. Perhaps this is Peter's love language. I'm just encouraged to know that in God's unfolding sovereign plan, our life experience and our personalities aren't null and void. He uses everything for his perfect unfolding plan. Now in this phase of the ministry of Christ... It's about six months until his death. Jesus is spending the greater portion of his life and ministry really training the disciples. He's training them because he knows that the time is short and the disciples are kind of ignorant of that reality. In fact, we didn't read it because we can't read the whole chapter, but back just two verses in verse 22, here's what Jesus said, and while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again, and they, that is the disciples, were exceeding sorry. 
Jesus has just declared unto them for the third time that he is going to go to Jerusalem and he is going to die. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be executed. But he speaks words of encouragement when he says, and on the third day, I will raise again, but they are ignorant. It's like they don't hear that part. Mark, in the parallel passage of that moment, tells us this in Mark 9, 32. They, the disciples, understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. I can identify with that. If you have a teacher and he speaks something as though it is generically understood, you don't want to be the one person who doesn't get it. And so the disciples hearing that are a little confused, but they don't want to ask Jesus for clarification because no doubt he's already told this to them. I think it's a little bit like Martha when Lazarus passes away and Jesus says, Martha, he will be raised again. And she says, I know, Lord, at the resurrection day that he will be raised again. But here and now my heart is broken. Jesus meant, no, I mean today he will be raised again. Maybe it's ignorance on the part of the disciples, but they're struggling with this. And in verse 24, upon arriving back in Capernaum, their hometown, maybe this could be termed a earthly ministry headquarters for Jesus Christ, they that receive tribute money come to Peter and they ask him a really simple question. Doth not your master pay tribute? Now we have to understand a little bit about this. This is not a Roman tax. This isn't put upon them because at this point in history, they are in bondage to Rome and having to pay custom and tribute and tax to the Roman government. This was specifically a tax for the support of the temple. The law of God obligated that every male among the Jews pay half a shekel yearly for the support of the temple. And because I can tell that you're hankering for it, and you just can't leave without having the law revealed unto you, let me read to you what Exodus 30 says. Say, don't do it. I'm doing it. It's too late. I'm committed. Exodus 30, verse 11, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them, this they shall give. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered, half a shekel, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and to clarify it for you, half a shekel is 20 geras. You get it. A half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. That's what they say. And in verse 16, he says, this money is given for the service of the tabernacle. This money is given so that the work down at the tabernacle can go on. Every male pays half a shekel every year. It's part of it. That is what is happening right now in this moment. Peter, upon returning to Capernaum, is confronted, does your master pay his taxes or not? Now, I know in our generation, there are probably a lot of Christians who wish, who desire, who want the next phrase to be, no, Jesus doesn't pay taxes. But Peter reflexively answers, he saith, yes. You and I can deduce from that reflexive answer from Peter that Jesus always paid his taxes. Now, never divorce yourself from the context of Scripture. We know that Jesus at this point in time is doing preparatory teaching for the disciples. He's getting ready to leave. 
Peter and James and John have just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It has been a miraculous, overwhelming scene. It was a life-changing, life-altering event to see Jesus in that light. No pun intended. And now Jesus is going to teach Peter something important. So Peter comes back into the house. I happen to think it's his house. As he walks back into the house in verse 25, Jesus prevented him saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Prevented him means Jesus spoke first. Before Peter could even say, hey, Jesus, these guys are out front and they want the temple tax, Jesus reveals his omniscience. Jesus reveals his awareness and understanding of everything, even conversations hidden from him when he says, Simon, what do you think? What thinkest thou? He speaks first. And then Jesus brings an analogy. Jesus is telling a story, but this is no empty story. This is revelatory. This is instructive. Jesus says, Simon, there are kings on this earth who run their kingdom with money that is raised from taxes. Understandable. Well, how are those taxes collected? Jesus asks, are they collected from the king's own children or are they collected from strangers? The answer is pretty obvious and Peter throws it out there, probably trepidatiously knowing Jesus is doing something here. I want to make sure I'm right. Peter says, of strangers. That's right. What point is Jesus making? Who are the children here that are free, and how are they free? You see, when Peter answered reflexively, and he answered so quickly, doth not your master pay tribute, he saith yes, Peter is assuming that Jesus is just like every other average man. Yes, he pays his half shekel yearly. He's about to learn something incredibly significant. The implication of what Jesus has just communicated and conveyed to Peter is this. The answer is that he was the Son of God. That is the reality. Jesus makes a bold assertion here. In effect, what Jesus is saying, and and this gets deep for a second, so this is nap time For everybody that wants to check out. This gets deep in this regard. Jesus is making a distinction. And you have to keep in mind. This is not a Roman tribute. This is a temple tax. Jesus has just said. Who pays this when a king wants to raise funds? Is it his own children or is it strangers? The answer is strangers. Jesus is the son of God. The children are then free. He's making a distinction Jesus is. Not in the world, he's making a distinction within Israel between who the sons that are free are and those that are in bondage are. It's a distinction among two groups of Jews. John the Baptist did the same thing. John the Baptist in his preaching called for Israel to repent and to become a part of the true Israel, not to merely boast we have Abraham as our father, as if mere descent or heritage or lineage to Abraham meant salvation. In his message in Matthew 3, 8, here's what John the Baptist preaches. Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Salvation is not in mere descent. That is what John the Baptist is preaching. Therefore, bring forth meats 
fruit, meat for repentance. The Apostle Paul did the same thing, Romans 9, 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are, get this phrase, not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. A distinction is being made. Descent, lineage, heritage is not enough. There is a new relationship available through Jesus Christ. So the answer is yes, strangers should pay the tribute. That is how it should work. And in the analogy that Jesus has just communicated, those who are not free but are under obligation to pay the tribute are those Jewish people, those of the Judaist religion, those law abiders, rejecting Jesus as the Son of God and those who have trusted Him and those who believe in Him and those who follow Him are free. They are sons of the king. Indeed, in Exodus 4.22, you say, well, now I know Israel was called the sons of God. Sure, it was a covenant, corporate kind of relationship. But as Jesus has arrived, there is a new personal relationship with God available through him. It's described in Romans 8.16. We'll read, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. That's the point that Jesus is making. Out of the deep, back into the shallow. Then are the children free. But who are the children that are free? The children that are free in Jesus' analogy are those who believe in Him. Those who trust in Him. Those who know who He is. That's why I think perhaps Peter is a little trepidatious when he has to answer these kinds of questions from Jesus. But here apparently he gives the right answer. I'm not sure he expected to learn what he learned. I'm not sure you are either. But he learned it. And so Jesus says to him, and this really strikes me, what Jesus has just declared, Peter already knows, don't divorce from the context. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. I am pleased with my son. He sees it. He knows it. And now he's asked to pay a tax and Jesus says to him, listen, I am the son of God. I am under no obligation to pay the tax for the support of the tabernacle. I'm the king's son. I am under no obligation to do that. And then the first word of verse 27 is notwithstanding. Notwithstanding communicates in effect, in spite of all the facts, in spite of the truth, in spite of who I am, lest we should what? Offend them. Lest we should cause someone to stumble, suggesting that though Jesus Christ is Lord of the temple and is under no obligation to pay the temple tax, he nevertheless sees to it that it is done so that he is not an unnecessary stumbling block before the Jewish people. And in doing this, what Jesus does is establish the pattern of gracious sensitivity in ministry to the weaknesses of others. That's what the Apostle Paul did. In 1 Corinthians 19, Paul was writing and he says this, For though I be free from all men, 
Yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. This is Jesus going into the house of the publican to have a meal, and they called him friend of publicans and sinners. They called him gluttonous and a wine-bibber, but to the weak he was weak. He ate with them. But when it came to not being a stumbling block before the law-abiding Jews, he paid the temple tax to not be a stumbling block to them, not an offense to the gospel. I think what Paul is indicating here is that he who was literally Pharisee of the Pharisees, saved by Jesus Christ. I think there were times, even though he knew he didn't have to do it, Paul probably paid the temple tax himself. It is stunning the condescension that we are reading here of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He owes absolutely nothing. He is under no obligation to pay this debt, and yet he does. It's clear that though believers are given tremendous freedom in the gospel, freedom from the doctrines and the commandments of men, freedom from the burdensome yoke of ceremonial law, those freedoms are always to be used for the sake of others. I mean, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians speaks of condescending love. How amazing it is that Jesus condescended as far as he did. He possessed rights as the Son of God, but he did not insist on his rights. He refused to be a stumbling block. Hebrews says this of him, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He could have stood on his rights, but he did not. He has, obviously in this passage, miraculous power to perform a miracle, any miracle that he wants. He's just walked off the Mount of Transfiguration, and yet he condescends to pay a debt he does not owe. Does that not sound familiar? One old writer said, I think we may look upon it as being an illustration, this lost coin, this submission to this debt, in regard to a very small matter of what is really the essence of our Lord's relation to the whole world and ourselves, His voluntary taking upon Himself of bonds from which He is free. So Peter's had this whole theological discourse with Jesus in a matter of seconds. Jesus then looks at Peter and He says to Peter, Peter, walk down to the shore, take your fishing stuff with you, cast the hook in the water, Catch a fish, the first fish that you catch, when you pull it up out of the water, open its mouth, there's going to be a coin in the fish's mouth, go and pay the tax. Now, I don't know about you, because we always tend to end these stories in our mind, like everybody understands this, everybody gets it. No, he said, walk down, catch a fish, first fish that you catch, there's going to be a coin. He didn't say, go catch a lot of fish, keep digging until you find a coin. He did not say, go cast a net, bring in a draw to fishes, go through the fish until you find a coin. He said, go down to the water, cast in your hook, first fish that comes up is going to have a coin in its mouth. I would have been having an inner monologue just like you all the way to the shore. What am I doing? First fish that I catch. Down he goes. I don't think he needed any bait. 
I don't think he needed any lure. I think he could have thrown a bear hook in the water and that fish snaps on. And Peter senses it immediately. He knows there's the tug. He pulls the fish up and out. He looks at the fish. I'm thinking probably this was a very intentional thing, like, no way. Into the fish's mouth he looks, and there it is. He reaches in. He pulls it out. Don't know what he did with the fish. Know what he did with the coin. After he wiped it off, it's so gross and slimy. Maybe he releases the fish. He walks with the coin back up. And those same gentlemen in my mind are standing there and he says, here's the payment for the customary temple tax for Jesus and get this, and for me. And he pays it. Well, I would happily pay taxes if I could fish money out of the sea like Jesus. You know what I happen to think is being communicated here perhaps? When Jesus mandated or invited the disciples to follow after him, it came with surrendering everything. Peter, we have every indication, was doing okay as a fisherman. He has a house in Capernaum. I don't think Peter was ever behind on his bills, but now he's following Jesus and he has surrendered all of that. Remember, when Jesus said to the disciples, follow me, he said, birds of the air, they have nests and foxes. Well, they have holes where they can go to sleep at night, but the son of man, he doesn't even know where he's going to lay his head tonight. There were times when the disciples did not know where their next meal was coming from, case in point, the feeding of the 5,000. We just don't have enough. We can barely feed ourselves 200 penny worth. We can't feed all of these people. They were utterly and completely dependent upon Jesus. Jesus was not an affluent man. I think what could be being communicated here is simply they did not have the capacity to pay this customary tribute. And Jesus sends Peter down and Peter pays this tribute. It is a stunning thing that we have just read. Jesus came through. The circumstances of life perhaps should never frustrate us when we walk with Jesus. Why? Because there's nothing that is not under the rule of our sovereign Lord and Master. One wrote, when He sends us, we arrive where we were sent, only to find that He's already been there, having arranged everything in advance. The psalmist, and maybe this is what Peter's thinking as he catches this fish in verse 6 of chapter 8. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. Peter has to stand there bereft of any capacity to pay this customary tribute. He's just been given a theological lecture by Jesus in a matter of time. He has just been privy in part to another miracle, and he has been taught a mountain in a short period of time. I think he was taught humility. As he stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, he probably thought, Lord, let's just burn this whole thing down. He was ready to build a temple. If only they could see what I just saw, they would truly understand and believe. We owe nobody nothing. We can do whatever we want. He learned incredible humility when Jesus said, Peter, remember the Mount of Transfiguration. It was just a few verses earlier. And now Jesus says, I don't want to be a stumbling block to people, so I'm going to pay a debt I I don't owe. That's a stunning lesson in humility. He was taught an incredible lesson in provision. 
It is fact that Peter had a need. It is fact that they had a moment in time where Jesus had to come through and Jesus came through as only Jesus could come through. And Peter's learning in this moment. If I serve him, not under constraint, but willingly. If I serve him, not with domination, but in a gracious sensitivity to the weakness of others, he will always come through. I don't mean that Jesus is going to send you some money to get you out of a scrape, but I do mean to say that Jesus is sovereignly aware of every situation, even the most seemingly insignificant events he's in complete control of. It's fact, as we read earlier, there's something unspeakably solemn in the thought that the Lord Jesus knows all things. All things. The guy who lost the coin, Jesus could have returned the coin to him. Hey, you lost this. Yeah, in the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, it's yours. I don't know where that man is. I don't know how that man lost his coin. You say, but couldn't God have produced a shiny coin In the fish, yeah, he could have done that. I really believe somebody dropped a coin. And along the way, it works out to be part of his sovereign plan. That's just how God is. Everywhere we go, we'll find he's already been there before us and prepared the way. We just move forward in faith. Simply, I will say this as I close. Christ paid a debt that he did not owe. He was under no obligation to pay it. And he covered Peter too. There's no doubt in my mind that that is displaying what will happen here in just a few chapters. When Jesus goes to the cross to pay a sin debt that was not his to pay. To pay a debt for ill behavior that Peter, who stands nearby Jesus and openly denies him and flagrantly sins on multiple occasions. Jesus did not do that. Jesus did not sin. He was under no obligation to pay that debt. There was no consequence attached to Jesus. He was the son of the king. But Jesus paid a debt for Peter because Peter owed a debt that he couldn't pay. And Jesus miraculously comes through as Jesus does. He paid for Peter this moment. He pays for Peter later, and he pays for all of us. And I'll finish where I begin, how lightly we esteem a small coin. Things that we think are insignificant, conversations, interactions, moments in time, are utterly significant in the unfolding sovereign plan of God. Nothing is insignificant. Would you please bow your heads with me just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.